good morning, everybody. Uh, good to be with you all. My name's Nate. As was said, uh, I am one of the pastors over at Soma Northwest. Uh, I'm excited to be with you guys this morning because I'm going to be extremely hypocritical. About 10 years ago, when I would give Brandon Shields critique on his sermons, I'd be like, man, you just have the longest wind-ups. You just like start and you talk for like 15, 20 minutes before you ever get to the main point, and that's what I'm going to do today. So I'm going to do exactly what I have long told Brandon to, to not do. Um, part of the reason why is I want to give you guys some context, because what we're going to talk about today as we dig into Acts chapter 20, it's incredibly important to me personally. This is a passage that's messed with my life, messed with my head, that's helped define uh, who I am and what I do and what my family does. Um, it's something that I came across. I remember, man, when I was back in college, it really uh, got inside of me. And college was a very long time ago for me now, so that was like 25 years I've been thinking about this passage. And this is actually, counting this morning, now the fourth time that I've given this particular sermon because at Northwest, we studied through the book of Acts about a year and a half ago. Then downtown also went through the book of Acts, and now I know you guys are also in the book of Acts. And I've given this sermon at every one of the Soma churches, uh, in part because it is so deeply personal to me, and it, it connects um, and helps to define uh, what I think I'm trying to do in the world what I think um, the church is about, what I think spiritual leadership, eldership, ministry is really all about. My background is a little different than maybe some of yours, a little different than a lot of people. I grew up uh, brethren, and the brethren are, you know, we'll call them first cousins to the, to the Mennonites, and they're probably like second or third cousins to the Amish. But one of the things about uh, the brethren, or what they call the Anabaptist tradition, these are, these are uh, believers that decided that, you know, probably about 400 years ago, they decided, oh, you know, we think believers should be baptized as adults. This was very unpopular in Germany where they were at the time, and uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics were like, oh, if you like being baptized so much, we're going to tie rocks around your legs and throw you in the river, and then we'll see how you like that baptism. Um, so... One of the things that I kind of grew up intuitively understanding about the church is that while we are deeply connected to the first century church, through, especially through this book of Acts, there's a lot of things we do that are really, really different. And I never realized that this is actually a controversial idea, that there's actually other Christian traditions that are like, no, we are an unbroken line of uh, connection to the, to, the, to the disciples themselves. And what we do today is exactly the same as what the church has always done, which I don't believe that. I don't think that's historically true or culturally plausible. <laughs> I mean, I think as we read the book of Acts, and part of the reason why we spend so much time here is to connect ourselves and to realize that there's a lot of things that we do as Christians in the 21st century Indianapolis that are cultural, that are things that we do because we have the resources to do them. We meet in this building. Brothers and sisters, there are Christians all over the world who are meeting together today and that are not in giant buildings. They don't have the money for that. Like, there's all kinds of ways the church manifests itself. And while we are all tied together through the message of the word and the blood of Jesus, and there are things that we do that are similar. We encourage one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we read the word publicly, uh, and we try to 
teach God's word, if you walked into a first century gathering of the church, it wouldn't look or do almost any of the same kinds of things in quite the same way that we look and do in the same way that if you visited the church, I'm sure, in Nicaragua as we spent nine years in Argentina, if you went to the church almost anywhere else in the world, you would see wide differences. So part of the reason why this is so important to me, this particular passage, is it gets at the essence of what does it really mean to serve God. It gets at the heart of that because these have been a really hard few years. It's been a very difficult time. Um, I don't need to tell you guys that. You all lived through it. It's been a really difficult time to... to, um, lead a church. It's been a difficult time to serve in any kind of ministry. And over the last couple years, um, with all of the tumult and confusion, as we've tried to deal with problems for which there are no living analogs, right? <laughs> right? We, this last pandemic, the previous thing this bad was like 100 years before. So it's not like there's a lot of people that I can call up and be like, tell me, Pastor Bob, what did you do with your church in 1918? Pastor Bob's been dead for a while. Like, there's nobody around that has any kind of uh, advice to give. And uh, what I've had to keep going back to, and the first time that I (laughs) preached this sermon was um, about a year and a half ago, and I was right here. It's really weird. It's a very much a sense of deja vu because I preached this sermon right here, standing in this spot speaking to Soma Northwest, because we were meeting here, because you guys were meeting down at the fairgrounds, and that was the first time um, that I talked about this, and now I'm here today sharing these things with you, and through that time, the things that, the things that have kind of come back at me, at, I know other pastors at other churches, both Soma and otherwise, um, they're not always connected with what I see in Acts 20 as being what our primary responsibilities are. So as we start to dig into that, I want to go through a litany of some of the things that have been said to me personally um, just in the last couple years that we've tried to navigate these difficult times. Uh, I've had people say things like, why, why don't we make Sunday morning sermons the centerpiece of our church? Which I was like, oh, pretty much we do, but okay. And I've had people say, um, Nate, why do you talk about race so much? Nate, why don't you talk about race more? Nate, why do you let your wife teach with you? Uh, Nate, why don't you let women speak enough? Nate, why are you so liberal? Why are you so conservative? And I've had someone ask, why don't you write more white papers? And my point isn't to be like, oh, woe is me. It's, it's so hard. You know, criticism's natural and normal. But this morning, I don't, I don't want to make a defense of the way that I personally do ministry, the way that the, the leaders and the pastors here do ministry, because ultimately, all of you are that defense. There's a lot of new faces, a lot of people that I don't know, but some that I do, and I hope that the people that know me, that, that know Brandon, that know Adam, that know any of the other leaders here would be able to look at the things that we're going to talk about here in Acts 20 and say, yeah, I recognize that, I see that. And ultimately, that's the best defense uh, that any of us can give. So as we've been working through the book of Acts, we're going to look in Acts 20, verse 15. This is 987 uh, in these red Bibles in your chairs there. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. So Acts 20, 15. And while everybody's flipping there, I'm going to tell you a story from back when I was in seminary. I had to do, I had to do this class 
this Greek three class, right? So it's like third year Greek, and I uh, had to do this 20-page double-sided exegesis paper, this deep dive into five verses of Scripture. And my five verses that I was given were Titus 1, 5 through 9. And Titus 1, 5 through 9, Paul's laying out, this is what an elder in the church should be like. These are the qualifications, the spiritual qualifications. And I had to write this giant paper, and I had to then give a defense of it, right? So I had to stand up in front of class. And my professor at the time was very adamant. We all show up, shirt, tie, you know, slacks, whatever, that we had to present ourselves professionally because he said, uh, pastors are professionals like doctors and lawyers are professionals. This did not sit it well with me at all. I grew up, to say that I grew up blue collar would imply that my dad ever wore a collar at all or that it was ever any color but like sweat stained yellow. Um, my dad's a tree trimmer. I grew, grew up over here at 55th in college. So I grew up, you know, working class, um, lower economic uh, status. And so hearing somebody say that the pastors, the ministers, the servants of the church should be like doctors and lawyers, it hit me totally wrong. I was very sort of upset by this. But I show up for my defense, I'm wearing my white shirt, wearing my tie, and I start talking about Titus 1, 5 through 9. And as I start to lay out what Paul says elders should be like, these are all spiritual qualifications. They're all qualities of life. Not a single one of them had to do with education or status or degrees attained. They certainly didn't have anything to do, as I undo my tie and I throw it on the ground, with the clothes that we're wearing. So I unbutton my shirt, take it off, and throw it on the ground. And I'm just like, this isn't what ministry is about. This isn't what God is calling us to do. Um, they nearly kicked me out of seminary. I survived by the skin of my teeth. Uh, but part of the reason why I was so disturbed by this idea that our leadership would be defined by our status, by the clothes that we wore, is because I've been spending so much time in Acts 20 thinking about the last thing Paul was going to say to the leaders in Ephesus. So at this point in the story of Paul's journeys, he's now received a vision. It's been confirmed multiple times through prophecies that he is supposed to go to Jerusalem and that this is going to essentially lead to his death. Like, that's what Paul believes. He's going to be bound. He's going to be imprisoned. Paul believes he's going to die. And I really think that he had in mind kind of the same journey that Jesus was on in the last year of his ministry. If you read the Gospels, it talks about how he set his eyes resolutely toward Jerusalem and how Jesus was making this march sort of back to Jerusalem, knowing what was waiting for him when he got there, right? The cross was waiting for Jesus at the end of his journey back to Jerusalem. And Paul is thinking the same. And so he's making his way back southeast uh, through, uh, through uh, Asia Minor, and he's, and he's taking land routes and sea routes, and he's going to make a stop along the way at the city of Ephesus, which is a city uh, where he had preached the gospel, where the church had taken root. Uh, it's a place where he had been beaten and imprisoned, and he wants to make one last bid to give his farewell message to the elders there, to basically tell them, not just, hey, this is what I did and this is the defense of my ministry. I don't think he needed to do that. They were the defense of his ministry. But he wanted to give them a blueprint. This is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to do. So we'll pick it up. I'll start a couple verses earlier in verse 13. Uh, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, uh, is narrating at this point. He's traveling 
uh, with Paul. Again, one of the reasons why we have so much trust and confidence in the scriptures is we have these first-person accounts. And so everything that we're reading, Luke is seeing first-person. He's writing these things down. And so you get these like really crazy details about the exact route that they traveled and also like how everybody felt. Not just what did Paul say, but how did everyone feel about what he said? Verse 13, it says, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because these were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. So Paul's going by land. Luke's picking up the narration. We're going to sail down. We're going to pick Paul up. It says, When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off of Chios. The following day, we crossed over to Samos, and the day after, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Part of the reason why there's all these details is Luke's laying out the route, because he wants you to know Paul went out of his way not to go to Ephesus. If you have ever visited your hometown, if you're not from Indy, if you, wherever you're from, if you've ever gone and visited your hometown and just dreaded it because you knew you were going to have to see a bunch of people and it was just going to take too long and just be too much and you're just going there for one thing and then like it's going to turn into this whole, this is what Paul's doing. He's like, I'm not going there. If I go to Ephesus, every single person in the church and the whole region is going to come down. Everybody's going to cling to me. They're going to beg me not to go, but I've got to get to Jerusalem. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take the long way around and I'm going to get about 60 miles away. When I'm 60 miles away, that's when uh, it'd be almost like if he was, if, if, he was coming by Indy. He skipped Indy. When he got as far as Kokomo, he stopped and said, okay, guys, now a few of you come up and see me. That's basically what he was doing. He's like, a few of you, the elders of Ephesus, I want you guys to come and see me because I want to give you my last message. I can't bear to see the whole church. I can't bear to see everybody right now. But a few of you to whom I have poured out my life, I want to come. I want you to come and see me one last time. Verse 18, when they came to them, he said to them, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. And this begins the blueprint of how Paul wants them to live. It's both a description of what he did, but also his encouragement to them. This is how I want you to lead. This is how I want you to serve the church. And this is my big point. I told you guys, long wind up. Here's my big point today. Here's the one thing I want you to remember and we'll go back to it over and over again. This is what Paul's about to tell them. Overseeing God's flock, being a shepherd of God's flock, it is about living the way our chief shepherd lived. And so we live and we shepherd the way our chief shepherd lived by teaching, by crying, by giving, and by suffering. That's what Paul's gonna tell them. The way that Paul lived was the way that Jesus lived was the way that he wanted them to live. And if there's something that ought to tie us back to the first century, it's not our order of service, and it's not our liturgy, or it's not who preaches or for how long. It's this. This is what ties us back to them. This is the thread that cuts across culture and time and space and location. It's living like Jesus lived, teaching, crying, giving, and suffering. You know... From the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul goes straight into the crying, like right from the top. I cry a lot, I'm definitely a crier, but my time in ministry has 
caused more tears to flow more often than almost anything that I can possibly imagine. Loving and caring for people, shepherding the flock of God is not about wearing a shirt and tie. It's not about being a professional like a doctor or a lawyer. It is about crying a lot. And it is about suffering. And when Paul says through the plots of the Jews, they know the kinds of things that Paul suffered. They know of the stonings and the beatings and the lashes and the imprisonment. He had scars all over him from these things. So they're looking at him and they remember seeing his broken body in the streets and they remember the blood. They remember praying for him while he was in prison and he's there, you know, and you can see, I'm sure, that he had scars on his wrists and I'm sure that he had scars on his face. And he says, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about the repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Paul was everywhere preaching to everyone. He was preaching both publicly. Now, we think often publicly now, we think, hey, this is public, right? Like, we're out in public, anybody can come in. When he says he was preaching publicly, he was like out in the city square in front of the, the Roman soldiers and the magistrates and the officials and all of the, their enemies and people who didn't know and people who didn't care. He was out preaching to everyone. And he was also in their homes at night, day after day, in people's homes, preaching to them, admonishing them. And he was preaching to Jews and to Greeks, which was really radical because these cities were deeply, deeply segregated along ethnic and religious lines. And Paul talked to everyone. He was in everybody's house. He didn't hesitate with, for any reason to say anything to anyone. This is what Paul did. And they all knew it. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I'll encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. So the Holy Spirit of comfort and encouragement, every place Paul goes is like, Paul, chains and afflictions await you. <laughs> like, Paul's, I'm sure by this point, because he's been to a lot of towns, we've like mentioned every place he's went, he, I'm sure Paul has the message by now, something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. And he has every reason to believe it's the last bad thing. Except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me, verse 24. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my, <laughs> excuse me, to finish my course. And the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Shepherding God's church is about living like our shepherd lived, by teaching by crying, by giving, by suffering. Now verse 28, he starts to lay this down as a template. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church so precious to Jesus that he, he paid for it in blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number 
and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Paul's warning to them is that the danger to the church is not out there. It's not the Romans with their swords. It wasn't the Jews with their rocks. It wasn't the magistrates with their prisons. It was actually evil men coming up from within the church. You know, the calls coming from inside the house. That's Paul's warning to them. That our, what's, what puts the church under threat is not outside. I don't know how many times and how many ways I can keep saying this. It's not the liberal crazy world or the conservative crazy world. It's not those people out there. It's us in here. It's the lies that people come up and teach. And Paul says, hey, be on your guard against them. This is your primary job, not to police everything that everybody thinks out there. The primary job is to make sure that we're continually teaching the word of God here, that we're continually tied to, to the message of the gospel here because from here is where the wolves are going to come. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. There it is again. He's crying. He's taught everywhere with them, publicly. He's taught in their homes. He's taught in everybody and every kind of person's home, anybody that would have them. He's been teaching night and day for three years. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. So Paul reminds them, God's set aside people for a holy purpose He set aside, that's what sanctified means, right? He set aside people for a holy purpose and God has a great reward for them. And he's reminding these Ephesian elders, he's, hey, you're gonna participate in that. He's gonna give to you. He's got something special for you to do. You're called, you're you're set apart. You're gonna share in this great reward. And because you're gonna share in a great reward, keep the following things in mind, verse 33. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing, I was like, I didn't need your money. I'm already called to receive this great inheritance from the king of all kings, the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the one who has everything and has richly given me everything I need. I didn't need money from you. I didn't covet your silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are here with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul makes it really clear, look, I worked hard night and day. I paid my own way, but I also paid the way for all the other people who were traveling with me. Because Paul makes it really clear in other places, it is a blessing to bless people to serve the church of God. This isn't some kind of screed about receiving your salary from the church. It's merely saying that Paul was paying for himself, but he was also supporting people in ministry that were traveling with him. One of the like blessings, one of the absolute blessings of Soma Church in my life has been that it has never been held against me that I get my paycheck from someplace other than Soma Church. I spent a lot of years in what they call vocational ministry, uh, being a missionary, raising support. It was very, very difficult. In the last 10 years, I've been paying my own way, paying my way for myself and others who traveled with me. And one of the real blessings is no one at this church, no one in downtown, no one in Northwest has ever held it against me. Nobody's ever been like, well, you're just a, you're just a lay pastor. Lay is one of those words that I really hate. It has no, it's like, has no bearing in 
and this uh, has everything to do with church tradition and history. Nobody's ever been like, well, you're not like one of our real pastors, you know. No, because, and I would hope no one would say that because I've been doing my best to cry and teach and, <laughs> and give and suffer right alongside with everybody else. And that's what Paul's saying. I didn't need your silver and your gold because I was giving, constantly giving. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there were many tears shed by everyone. So there it is again. This is not like, what, the third time? <laughs> the third time in 15 verses where Luke's like, yeah, everyone's crying. Everyone's crying because this is it. They love him. They've seen him go through so much. He saved their lives. He brought them the gospel of life. And they're never going to see him again. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to a ship. Brothers and sisters, shepherding the flock of God is about living like our Savior lived. It's about teaching and crying and giving and suffering. The things that Paul did are a blueprint and an illustration for us. I'm going to um, finish this morning. I want to tie this big idea real practically down with some application points. And this is a little bit of a potpourri, a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, I have found these things to be impactful uh, at the other churches that, <laughs> that I've shared them at. I think that they'll be relevant to you guys too. Um, and they all tie back to this core idea, right? Um, I want us to have some shoe leather, something that we can apply directly to our lives. I'm going to talk. It's sometimes hard to talk about the issues that we all live with, that we all face day to day, they're almost like too current to talk about on Sunday morning, like we're trying to connect to a 2,000-year-old text and bring it to life and live according to it. But meanwhile, we're all living and experiencing things communally, and it's sometimes hard to talk about those things directly. So this morning, I'm going to pull these, these few application points, um, hopefully directly from, from your all lives and I, th I think that there'll be an encouragement. So the first thing I want to encourage you guys with is to hold your leaders accountable to the right standards. You know, I kind of listed that list of critiques and criticisms that people give. Um, and they're kind of all over the board. But the critiques and criticisms, I think, that are fair, the things that we have to do about to our leaders, to our elders and our shepherds, is to hold them accountable to the following things, the things that we just heard about. Are they teaching the whole counsel of God's word? Are they opening God's word? <laughs> are they doing it publicly? Are they doing it house to house? Are your leaders teaching? Have they been in your homes? Are your leaders crying with you? Are they, are they crying and weeping with you? Are they suffering trials and hardships? Are they talking to people of all kinds of different backgrounds? Are they trying to help the weak and give to those in need? Are they working hard? Those are fair, right, good things. Those are the things. That's the lens we hold up to judge, whether it's you know, a pastor, an elder, or really anybody who's, who's working and serving in ministry. We have so much criticism. We're so hard on each other. We're really hard on each other, just as people here in America. We really um, like to you know, walk away and just really... Um, question everybody's character, everybody's, uh, every word people say. 
And I want to encourage you guys, as it comes to our leaders, let's, let's ask these questions. Are they teaching the whole council? Are they teaching publicly house to house? Are they crying enough? Ask, are your leaders crying enough with you? I think what you'll find, because I know your leaders, I think you'll find, oh, they actually cry a lot. <laughs> I know how much some of them are crying. Um, and I know they're crying day and night with you guys. Are they working hard? These are things. These are things that are fair questions. Number two, my authority to stand up here and talk to you guys is really the same as, um, as, the same of you, as your leader's authority. It's not really derived from a position that we gave a shepherd's crook and a lantern to somebody. It's not so much derived from the position. It's certainly not derived from, from degrees. It's not derived from clothes. Obviously, I, I used to call this my defense of why I, I wear a baseball jersey to preach in every Sunday. Like, I dress like I'm Ryan Lambert's fever dream. You know, like, this is, there you go. You knew it was coming. Uh, that's not where authority comes from. It derives from God's word. And so that's what we hold all of, all of our leaders accountable to. It's to God's word. Are they teaching it? Are they preaching it? I want you all to remember, third thing, it really is a serious thing that the danger to the church is every bit as much from within as it is from without. Um, the, uh, the Mars Hill podcast became really popular a few months ago. Um, it was this long, very challenging tale of the collapse of a megachurch out in the Pacific Northwest. It was really helpful for me because I missed all that. I was out of the country for a good chunk of when um, this guy, Mark Driscoll, became a national figure. I had heard a couple of his sermons, but I didn't get any of it. And I kind of came to Soma, and it's funny because this, like, all, the whole story sort of ties into Soma. Soma was, um, I'd say, like first cousins, you know, and like none of the people in that podcast really had anything to do with this church, but they were like people that uh, other people knew. And my first few years here at Soma, both as a member and as an elder, people would be really angry all the time. And it usually, as it turns out, now in retrospect, I can look back and be like, oh, people either thought we were something that we weren't, or they were mad that we weren't something that they thought we should be. And a lot of it was tied to Marcel. A lot of people were really angry at us for stuff Marcel was doing. And I was always like, what are you talking about? We've never said anything like that. We've never done anything like that. And I would get this like, guilt by association thing. And then other people, when they found out that we actually weren't teaching or doing any of the things that Marcel were doing, were really mad about that. <laughs> They're like, why not? And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, what that podcast did, which I think was really, really helpful, was illustrate again the, the primary challenges that we face, both as a local church, as a regional church, as a national church. They're going to come from within. It's not going to be pressure from outside. It's going to come from within. So as we think about where danger lies, and I'm certainly not going to be like, hey, so be suspicious of your neighbor. That's not my point. My point is authority comes from God's word, and so we continually go back to God's word, not assuming that our patterns of doing things are perfectly the same, but we continually go back to God's word for authority, for teaching, we hold our leaders accountable to it. And when people speak up with voices, we go and we 
Check it against God's word. That's the best way to do it. And we recognize the craziest things that happen are not going to be something out there. They're going to be something in here or something from within the broader Christian fellowship. Number four, uh, haven't talked too much about all of the pain and trauma of the past year. And I think the past couple years, I hope you guys know what I mean. It's been a bad time to be alive uh, for about two years. Um, can we just say that out loud? That is really rough. And maybe, and listen, maybe you guys are all talking about it. Maybe this is old news, but like I'm not hearing it that much. And I look around and almost everybody I know is really still reeling. Like the first level, like a lot of us just lost people. We lost people. People died. Our real enemy is death, right? Death is really who we're fighting against. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. And death has kind of had its way with this country, with this world. For the last couple years, we've lost a lot of people. We've also lost a lot of people. Like, everybody went nuts. Like, I can barely go on Facebook to see pictures of my cousin's kids because I don't know what my cousin's gonna say, you know? Like, and that's really, really painful. Like, I kind of joke about it, but it hurts because I've got friends, I've got family members that, like, I'm honestly scared to talk to them because they're, they've, they've, it's like they've lost their minds. <sighs> Teachers, pastors, friends, people that I was like, no, I know what you used to believe. Why are you doing this? Why are you saying that? It's been really, really hard. It's really painful. Just even the fact that we were physically separated from one another for so long. Look, I, I think a lot of that was really necessary, but can we also acknowledge that there were real consequences to it? There are consequences to our kids going to kindergarten on a computer. There, there's consequences to the fact that we didn't get to meet together. There's consequences that uh, we couldn't see family and friends. That all came at a price, and we were all kind of feeling that. And I think that um, one of the things that I want to encourage you with is, A, that it's okay that we take some time, some space to kind of heal, to recuperate, to recover from that. It's just okay if you feel stressed out, wigged out, and, and it's, you know, it's like, oh, COVID's gone. Well, maybe, you know, <laughs> unless it comes back again. Um, but even if it's gone, it's still kind of here. I'm still feeling it. We're still recovering from it. Um, so as we think about what life and ministry should look like, there's still going to be a lot of crying ahead, right? There's still a lot of tears that we haven't shed. There's still a lot that we all are unpacking. So it's okay to take the time to be honest and to kind of say those things out loud. This one may sound like a weird non sequitur, um, but it does connect. I want to say a special encouragement to those of you that are fostering and adopting right now, especially in light of, I don't know, man, my Facebook feed, I've had more weird bigotry on my feed about Christians adopting and people are like, well, Christians don't really care about adoption. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many people I, I literally cry with every week because of the trauma of fostering and adoption? Fostering and adoption is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And if you're doing it, God bless you. But I just wanna say out loud, it's a crucifixion. It's a crucifixion. It's really hard. It's a, it's a kind of death to yourself. And I've wept and cried and struggled through um, with enough of you who are trying to honor Jesus 
and trying to honor his kingdom and bringing children who have been traumatized or experienced death into your homes. And I just want to say, it's really, really hard. And if you're going through it and it's a lot harder than you thought it was going to be and it's a lot more painful and it's got all these things and you were like, oh, I just thought it was going to be this blessing. And I know most of you know better than that. Um, But sometimes we as the church can be like, oh, praise God, it's this beautiful thing that you're doing. In reality, it's like, wow, no, you're in... You're inviting a form of crucifixion into your life. And I just want you to know, like, it's okay if it's a lot harder than you thought it was going to be, if it's a lot more painful. Um, we, can't, we can't save the world. We can't save anyone. We can't change things. That's not really what we're trying to do. We are just opening our homes to children that have been through pain and trauma and death. And that's really tough. The thing about crucifixion is that uh, only fools ask to be crucified. You know, like, every once in a while I'll see like a cross stitch of, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, you know. That sounds really good on a sign. But the reason why the the scriptures say that the gospel is foolishness to the world is because the gospel's bidding us come and die. Come and die. Come and be crucified. And the beautiful things that the church does, and that's the whole wide range of things, not just fostering adoption. I'm just calling those out because they've been so front and center for so many people that I love. These are all ways of being crucified, and crucifixion is a bloody, horrible death. And it's really, really painful. And as a church, we need to make space for each other. Look at your brother and sister and realize this is somebody who's being crucified. This is somebody who's being crucified. So maybe I stole my criticism. <laughs> maybe I stole my condescension. Maybe I just look at them and I'm like, hey, I, I'm here at the foot of your cross with you while you're being crucified. Um, I have no solution to that, by the way. There's, that point doesn't go anywhere because, again, remember, <laughs> remember, it's about living like Jesus lived. And the thing about Jesus' life is it ended in crucifixion. And then he received new life back. And the receiving new life back for us is still a promise. It's still out there. It's still what we're expecting. It's that inheritance that he's prepared for the sanctified. Um, but in the meantime, it means still crying and suffering, and, and that's what it is. And those of us that cry the most and suffer the most and give the most get the honor of being <laughs> leaders in the church. You know, what you get is more crying and more suffering and more giving, and then you teach a little bit on top of that. But mostly what you're teaching people to do is here's how you cry, and here's how you suffer, and here's how you give. So overseeing God's flock is about those things, but honestly, it's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. This is, this is my last point, my point of application. It's really obvious. Live like your Savior lived. Live like your Savior lived. Give and suffer. <laughs> Cry. Be, be public. Be in house to house. Do it to all people. And, and, and teach other people to do the same. So th- there you go. That's my encouragement. That's what Paul left them with. He left them with his example. Hey, do these things. And he wasn't even just like, do these things because I did them. He did them because Jesus did them. And he was, as he said in 1 Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's what he left them with. We uh, was talking to James Piscasio earlier, and James was saying, you know, we do, when we talk about eldership, we talk about leadership in the church, we 
we often go to the Timothy and the Titus passages, which are about spiritual requirements, right? Like, what does it take to do this? And it's basically like, you know, uh, manage your household well and don't drink too much and be someone who's trustworthy and above reproach. But then the what do you actually do? What do those people do? It's Acts 20. What you actually do then is teach and cry and suffer. I'm gonna ask um, the ushers to bring forward the communion cups. I'm gonna keep talking as we do this. We'll, we'll bring them up because this is the last point. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate. This is what we remember, that our Lord and Savior came to this earth offering up his blood and his body that he suffered and that he gave and that he was teaching us that his kingdom is the eternal kingdom. He was teaching us that he actually holds the keys to death, that he has victory, thank you, over the grave, that that's what he taught us. And he gave and he suffered and he bled for us. And so when we take communion, we're remembering, we're remembering his tears, right? that he sweat as drops of blood. We're remembering that when he came to Jerusalem, he saw it and wept over it. We're remembering that for him, you know, when we talk about his passion, we're talking about his suffering, you know. Saying that Jesus was passionate wasn't like Jesus was super emotional, like, yeah, yeah, Jerusalem. No, when we say Jesus was passionate for Jerusalem, Jesus was passionate for the world, what we mean is he suffered because that's what passion means, to suffer. So each week we take communion, we take the blood and the body, it's bread and it's juice, and it's not magic, but we take it to remember and to remind ourselves that we will live as our Savior lived. And that may mean being broken as our Savior was broken, bleeding as he was bleeding. Because, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. And we do this both as a remembrance, but also as an encouragement and as a promise that even though this ends in death, and every week this ends in death, we know that that's not really where the story is. Every week we rise up, we go out, because that's the resurrection of Jesus, that he had power over our enemy death. And death has won a few rounds, but praise be to God, we have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, bless this bread and this cup. We remember you and we love you and we honor you. Thank you for teaching us how to live, for empowering us how to live. Thank you for choosing us for something special and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you.